Hi, my name's Stuart Weems and welcome to the Investopoly podcast. My goal is to give you simple, easy to understand strategies, insights and tips to help you master the game of building wealth. Now, before I get into this week's episode, I'd like to thank people that uh, write in and, and share their comments or uh, leave a rating or review uh, wherever you listen to this podcast. Uh, I greatly appreciate it. Uh, as you can imagine, it's a lot of effort to try and come up with an interesting idea each week. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've chosen not to have guests on this podcast. So uh, it's really 100% relying on me to come up with all the content, um, which I greatly enjoy. I really enjoy writing and talking about these things, but it's also lovely to receive that feedback. So I just want to say thank you for that. Uh, and for those that haven't left a rating or review, uh, if you're able to do so, wherever you listen to the podcast, uh, I would greatly appreciate it. Okay, so this week I want to talk about government's vested interest in rising property prices. So of course there's a lot of large and powerful institutions uh, that have vested interests in uh, the, the property market, uh, developers, uh, the banks and so forth, but I I think all levels of government uh, have the most to gain from uh, rising property prices uh, and uh, that's the reason I think that this housing, housing affordability problem in inverted commas uh, won't get solved anytime soon. Uh, so firstly, governments are really the major contributor to housing affordability problems, both with respect to taxes, land releases and, and so forth. Uh, and then secondly, government taxes are heavily reliant upon rising property prices and also demand for, for property. Now, of course, we could debate whether this is right or wrong and what sort of role should governments play in this regard. Uh, I don't want to go into that debate, uh, at least for the purpose of this podcast. It's really to point out that government does have a vested interest uh, and you can use that uh, factor um, in making investment decisions for yourself. Okay, so the three levels of government, typically, federal government, uh, then we've got state governments, uh, and then we've got local councils, and they're really the three levels of government. I just wanted to talk about, you know, each of those levels of government vested interest in the property market. So the first one is, you know, federal government, and obviously the federal government uh, regulates uh, income tax, uh, and there's two elements with respect to income tax if we're investing in property, the first one, the obvious one is negative gearing. And that's obviously a cost to the government because uh, people are saving tax by uh, offsetting uh, property rental losses against other income. And negative gearing was brought in um, in 1985. And uh, as, as you know, Bill Shorten proposed to get rid of it in his election campaign in 2019 uh, and, uh, and failed to do so, I doubt probably any political party is going to try that in the near future anytime soon. But negative gearing is only half the story because that's the income side of the investment property. The other side of the investment property is the capital growth. And if we're investing in investment grade property, we hope that is the by far and away the largest proportion of our return if we're investing in property. So each year the ATO releases uh, taxation statistics. Um, there's not uh, uh, as much detail as uh, one might like to see uh, in them, but uh, it, it seemed uh, from my analysis that in the 1920 year, which is the most recent year those statistics have been released, 
uh, that property investors claimed around about $730 million of negative gearing losses. So that sort of reduced uh, taxable income by $730 million, which sounds like a lot of money. But really the flip side uh, to the income losses is the capital gains, eventual capital gains. And obviously, if we're an investor, we, we're going to pay capital gains tax on whatever gain we might make if, if and when we sell the property. Well, when you have a look at the capital gains that was reported in that year, it was uh, north of $20 billion. So, you know, what is that? So 25, almost 30 times uh, negative gearing. Now, unfortunately, uh, the capital gains aren't split up between shares and property and so forth. Um, so, of course, that $20 billion doesn't completely relate to just the property market. Although, um, and obviously businesses, you know, businesses, if an individual sells their share in a business, there might be a capital gain as well. So it could be uh, from that point as well. I guess if you had a share portfolio, it's quite possible that you could sell the whole portfolio and crystallise a massive gain. But um, share investors tend to sell down over time uh, to limit the amount of capital gains tax that they pay, whereas obviously you can't do that with property. It's a lumpy asset. You need to sell all of it. So I wouldn't be surprised if the line share of that CGT bill or that, that gain, $20 billion, uh, related to property, but it's unfortunately difficult to tell. I guess the point is, you know, in this podcast, I've talked about the, the whole aim of investing in property is to benefit from compounding capital growth. The consequence of that, however, is that we end up paying eventually uh, a large amount of capital gains tax. So uh, the same thing that, uh, that attracts us to property, which is the negative gearing benefits, um, that's the, the, the little bit that the government gives away, I guess. Uh, in return for you know gaining more capital when the asset is eventually sold in the long run. So if you're the federal government uh, and you're thinking about tax revenue, uh, rising property prices is actually kind of good for you uh, because it's raising a lot more more tax. And uh, as a federal government, you're you're dangling a tax benefit to get people more interested in investing in property. Uh, and as that demand increases for property, uh, so do property prices. So therein lies, I guess, the vested interest for uh, the federal government. Okay, so now let's turn our attention to the states and territories then. Uh, so states and territories uh, generate two main tax revenue income streams from property or the property market. The first one being uh, stamp duty. So obviously when a property is purchased, the purchaser pays stamp duty on the asset. And the second is land tax, uh, obviously. Um, land tax is levied on investment properties, not the family home or not the main residence, uh, but they're really the two um, sources of, of state tax. Um, and really, it is the largest single source of tax revenue for the, the states and territories. Payroll tax is a, another big one, but it's second to property taxes. For, so, for example, uh, in the Victorian budget, uh, property revenue, property-related revenue is projected to be about $14 billion, which accounts for 46.5% of the state's taxation revenue. In New South Wales, it's $16.5 billion, which accounts for 41.6% of the state's uh, total taxation revenue. And in Queensland, uh, $6.5 billion, which is 34.5% of the state's tax revenue. So I haven't looked at the other states and territories, of course, but 
it really does show, particularly in Victoria, how reliant upon uh, either the number of transactions that need to occur in the market or rising property prices, or in fact, both those things. So obviously, property transactions impacts the amount of stamp duty that's payable. So the more properties that get sold, uh, the more revenue that they can generate. Uh, And so it should come as no surprise then that regulating the property industry, particularly buyers, agents and so forth, isn't necessarily going to be an attractive thing for a government to do because with regulation you're probably going to restrict or reduce the amount of transactions that occur and then that's going to have an impact on tax revenue. So if you're a financial advisor like myself and you want to recommend a client invest, say, $100,000 into the share market, there's a, a lot of onerous obligations that you need to fulfill in order to give that advice, including preparing a statement of advice and et cetera, et cetera. However, if a, if a property buyer's agent wants to turn around and recommend a client, say, invest a million or even $2 million in the property market, uh, there's virtually no obligations uh, that, that, that are necessary in order to do that. Uh, And if you think about it again from the government's perspective, it kind of makes sense that, you know, I don't really want to regulate that environment because that's going to impact my tax revenue. In regards to land tax, uh, that's really driven by uh, land valuations, which are undertaken by the valuer general in each jurisdiction. Um, Rising property prices obviously drive higher land tax revenue, Uh, And if you have a look at Victorians' land tax revenue, for example, over the last 13 years, I'm going to just pick that uh, time period, uh, receipts have grown at a compounding rate of just under 11%, uh, which is much faster than what the median house prices has grown. So clearly, uh, land tax rates, uh, the rate of tax has been rising. Uh, and uh, I think if you think about the, uh, well, each state has uh, got themselves into quite a bit of debt, um, no more than Victoria, uh, you can imagine uh, there's going to be a further concentration on trying to drive that tax revenue growth. Okay, let's talk about local governments, which is the third level of government that I want to talk about. Uh, local governments drive most of their revenue from rates and waste management fees, uh, so uh, less so uh, from, from from property. Of course, rising uh, rate notice valuations uh, drives revenue too, so that's kind of good. Uh, but local governments also drive revenue from charging uh, property developers town planning fees, uh, permit fees, uh, contributions to the cost of infrastructure and so forth. That's called a Section 94 contribution uh, so, for example, if you're a developer and you want to develop a, do a small-scale development, uh, you'll have to pay an open space contribution of between 5 to 10% of the property's land value uh, after the development's been approved. So, really, they're making developers pay for infrastructure, which you could argue is really the obligation of government uh, rather than property developers. Now, if you levy a 5 to 10% tax on property developers, uh, there's no prizes for guessing what happens. Of course, uh, property developers seek to um, uh, seek to obtain compensation via higher sale prices. So really those uh, taxes really then just flow through to the end owner of that property and uh, pushes uh, prices higher and obviously creates more or contributes towards uh, housing affordability pressures. 
So there's the three levels of government, how they've got a vested interest in uh, that you know, property prices continue to rise. If we now turn our attention to really the housing affordability crisis, which is really a, a, a bit of a hot-button issue, uh, a hot-button political issue, I should say, um, as most uh, most people you know, worry how future generations are going to be able to afford to own a property in Australia. And there's been a lot of academic research that uh, concludes the most effective way to improving improve housing affordability is to really increase the supply of new dwellings. And so really things like uh, building restrictions, draconian planning approvals, limited land releases are, are really the enemy of housing affordability. Um, but of course, when it actually comes to building those new houses, hopefully they can be affordable too. Uh, unfortunately, many economists have studied the impact of government taxes on the cost of new housing, and a lot of those studies uh, conclude that government uh, taxes and so forth contribute to ab- about 30% to the cost of uh, building a, a new house. And, and I've got a link in the show notes uh, to a, an article in the AFR uh, recently that showed that. Now, a lot of uh, uh, these reports are often produced by um, businesses that are in that sector, so developers and so forth. But I, I know the RBA has done its own work independently uh, and concluded uh, a very similar amount. So really, uh, if the government was serious about tackling housing affordability and uh, making it cheaper for people to you know, buy a new home, you would think that's probably the best place for them to start since they can control 30% of the the cost of new housing. Of course, a lot of these things flow through to the end user. Uh, so if the government's going to charge GST, if the government's going to, you know, require developers to contribute towards infrastructure and so forth, as I said, that's that's almost always going to throw through, flow through to the end user, the, the buyer of that property. Um, and uh, But there's certainly ways that the government can make that more affordable. For example, if they work out the developer has paid, I don't know, $10,000 of GST uh, in constructing a particular asset, well, maybe they could track that through as a refund, a tax credit to the end purchaser of that property. So it, it allows... Um, you know, it allows the, the government, and particularly if they're first-home buyers, allows the government to, again, reduce their tax burden that's contributing to the, the relatively um, high price of new property. The other incentive for government to keep property prices relatively healthy is just overall general economic health. Uh, when the value of our home is rising, uh, it typically contributes positively to, to consumer confidence And consumer confidence then translates into consumer spending, which is really the largest component of GDP. Uh, Conversely, when the the value of our homes are falling, uh, we feel a lot less confident and consequently consumer spending falls. And and we saw that um, uh, very starkly in the US uh, during the GFC, uh, what is that, nearly um, uh, 12 to 14 years ago when the, the value of houses were falling, you know, the economy really contracted. And there's a variety of things that contribute to that, of course, but one of them was, you know, falling house prices. Of course, it would be remiss of me not to mention that politicians uh, also tend to be quite heavily invested in the property market as well. According to independent website Crikey, um, 227 politicians own 
510 properties. Uh, of these, 84 of them, or 37%, own three or more properties. So if you believe that politicians are driven or influenced by uh, self-interest, and I guess I'm not stacking my neck out by saying that, then you've also got to believe that government is less likely to make changes to uh, an industry that's going to adversely affect its future investment returns. Whilst in this podcast, I really just wanted to focus on the vested interest that government has with uh, driving property prices higher, um, it would be silly not for me to point out that there is one large big business or sector uh, that also has a vested interest and has quite a lot of lobbying power with the government, and I'm referring to the big four banks there. You know, the big four banks make uh, a lot of their profit, uh, more than 50% from retail banking, uh, and the biggest profit driver, or almost the sole profit driver of retail banking, is mortgages. Uh, so they want a, a really healthy and sustainable property market too. Um, and the big banks are going to, you know, they've got a vested interest to make sure they're going to be in a position where they can continue to provide funds uh, for people that want to borrow to either buy a home or investment property. Um, and so that can't be ignored either. So there you go, maybe property is too big to fail, dare I say it. But in summary, all levels of government are highly vested in property prices continuing to rise because they're going to drive uh, further tax revenue. Uh, furthermore, the politicians that uh, have an influence over um, uh, the, the regulation and, and uh, treatment of the property market uh, also have a personal vested interest in it as well. So I think when we look back at it as an asset class and we, you know, we think about what will property prices do and uh, is the government really engaged in uh, creating more affordable housing, I think when we reflect back and, and see where their revenue is being driven from, uh, we, I think it's reasonable to conclude uh, that they're probably not going to do too much to uh, restrain uh, future price increases. Okay, so there you go for this week. Until next week, bye for now.